for our people in Dominica to hear this program. Every week I ask you to invite five other people to listen to this week in interview with you. That way we can start a movement. You see, the purpose of this week in interview is to bring ideas and issues to your attention, to arm you with knowledge so that you can be moved to act. And when we move in the same direction, we can create change, we can cause change. So help me to grow the audience so that we can have movement based on good, solid information and knowledge. Invite five people to join us on this week in interview. My guest tonight is Mr. Colin Gavi. Yeah, Gavi, like it, Marcus Gavi, is His Excellency, Marcus Mosiah Gavi. Um, Gavi. And um, I grew up uh, hearing about this man and the work that he that he was doing and how courageous he was and how clear his message was that as black people in, in this part of the world, we did not have to stay here and suffer the indignities that we suffered. We could stay here and, and have our own and develop our own so that we could deal with the world as an equal and not as a subservient people. And, and, and so I am extra excited to have uh, his bloodline, direct bloodline. He's, uh, my guest tonight, Colin Gavi, his, his father was Marcus Gavi Jr. And so he has lion blood running through his veins. And I'm, I'm really excited about the, um, about the show tonight, about the conversation that I'm going to have with him tonight. And of course, uh, it should go without saying that he being the grandson of Marcus Gavi, he is from Jamaica, and we, so which makes the Caricom anthem even more um, relevant. And every Wednesday, I play the Caricom anthem at the start of the show because I really believe that the Caribbean can realize much better outcomes for Caribbean people if we go ahead and approach our future with more cooperation and with a unified vision. So what I'm going to do now, I'm going to play the Caricom Anthem. Let's listen to Mikhail Anderson as she sings the Caricom Anthem. And when I come back, I'm going to be joined by Mr. Colin Gavi. And we're going to talk about the, the message and the vision of his father and try to bring it into contemporary terms and to discuss whether there's still a place for his message of Pan-Africanism in, in a contemporary setting. And those of you who usually hear me on TDN Radio, just to make you be aware that we're on TDN TV, TDN TV.net. So TDN Radio.net, TDN TV.net, 
when Collins joins me, I'll find out if he's also sharing it on his Facebook page because we usually also have it on this week uh, on this week interview Facebook page. And, and, and so we'll 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 straighten all that out when we when we come back. But stay with me. Let's play some of the Caricom anthem, and we'll be and we'll be back um, with Mr. Um, Colin Gavi uh, on the line talking about the his father's vision, bringing it into a contemporary context. And let's see if we can come up with some ideas that that will help us ex extricate ourselves from from the, the bad times that we continue to face. Distant lands, keeping adventure, some bound in chains. Through battles waged and fought, through victory and pain. By test of their courage, our freedom was gained. In homage to those gone before us, the heroes of lands in the sun, we vow to join hands and to focus on building one Caribbean. Raise your voices high. Sing of your Caribbean pride. Sing it loud and strong. Your hearts beat as one. Celebrate in song as we rise to heights where we belong. Sound of Diversity, our ethnicity, the bonds that unite us are stronger than these. We die, we pray, we love, we dance and we play. We relate to each other, just in Sing of your Caribbean 
Thank you very much, Anthony. It's my pleasure, and I'm I'm happy to be here. Yes, uh, I mean your 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 grandfather, as I said, is one of the most recognized names on planet Earth. And and in, in preparing for our conversation, I just did a little Google search, and there's so much wisdom and so much message that he shared. So, for example, he has this one that I used in the Facebook promotion. It says, "A people without knowledge of their past history." origin and culture is like a tree without roots the the other one that i really liked he says we of the negro race are suffering more than any other race in the world from propaganda propaganda to destroy our hopes our ambitions and confidence in self propaganda as is has done more to defeat the good intention of races and nations, even more than open warfare, and and so that's how I I, I, I am introducing this conversation to the audience. Um, as I said, audience, um, Colin Gavi is the grandson of Marcus Gavi. His father was Marcus Gavi Jr., so he has the blood of lion flowing through his veins. So, uh, uh, Colin, I, before we even go much further, I'm going to give you a chance to, to introduce yourself. But more importantly, I'm going to give you a chance for those of you, believe it or not, there may be folks who are not familiar with the message and the work of your grandfather, Marcus Gavi, um, and the Pan-Africanism movement, and, and all the messages that, that he, that he um, tried to bring to us and our parents. So, so I'm going to give you the mic. To, to start off with, take as much time as you need and explain to folks who your father was, what his message is, and what it, what it, what his message can mean to us, even though um, his message was really 
early in the 20th century where he was there physically, how relevant it is even today, even today um, in, in our contemporary time. So I'm going to give you the mic and I, 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 I'm going to be listening as all of the audience um, as you lay out what you perceive to be the vision and the message of your grandfather, Marcus Garvey. Okay, as we look at the history books, what people will find, um, see, is that Marcus Garvey, of course, came from Jamaica. He was born in 1987. Um, he, he came, he, before he came to the United States, which is everybody um, know he came to the United States, he uh, went to uh, South America. He was, a matter of fact, if you go to Costa Rica, there is a Jamaican settlement because Marcus Garvey went there also, Limon, Costa Rica. And he saw the plight of black people and um, he was a printer by trade. So therefore, when he was in uh, those, uh, like Panama, he was, uh, he, he'd edit the El Nacion paper as well as he'd work on the Panama Canal. Panama Canal. And he was always uh, writing about um, workers' rights, you know, as far as uh, before it was even popular, as far as, you know, um, having certain amount of hours you work, having rest period breaks. He was always looking out for, at that time, we know the Negro, the Negro people. Um, he uh, went to uh, England and then in 2000, um, in um, 1914, um, he came back from England to Jamaica and um, he communicated with uh, Booker T. Washington, who, um, uh, of course, started the Tuskegee Institute. And through their communications, he wanted to come and, and meet Booker T. Washington um, because he was interested in building something like the Tuskegee Institute in Jamaica. So that was his primary goal. Came here in 1916, but by then, Booker T. Washington had already died. Uh, he uh, came to the United States, and of course, he came to New York, and uh, there was a, a large community there. Um, even Pan-Africanism was popular there. Uh, he proceeded to uh, um, started what's called the, um, the UNIA, which is the Universal Negro Improvement Association. And I want to emphasize universal, because a lot of people have come to say my, my grandfather movement was a back to Africa movement when he was really focused on the diaspora of Africa, which means Africa and all the descendants of Africa that are spread all around the world. So he formed the UNIA. He visited a lot of uh, states to see what the plight of the, of the, you know, the black people were, or the Negroes in this country. Um, he set up a UNIA over, you know, 30, uh, 38 different states. He eventually got to the point where there were like 700 uh, different uh, outlets of the UNIA. Uh, he, uh, he was interested in uniting Negroes and letting them know where their origins were. And he was, he was interested in nation building, meaning that one of the things he would say is that the white man um, has his God and his God is white, but the black man can have his own God and his God is black. And we know that the, the, as far as the world is concerned in the formation of the world, it started in Africa. So I think we're more accurate as far as, um, you know, our God um, because of where we know we believe in God. That's where he came from. 
Now, the thing about it is, is that he um, he had what's called uh, Liberty Hall. Anytime he had a UNIA, he would have a Liberty Hall. He would have he would set up set it up. It was basically a a building that housed everything. Um, it housed, you know, he would teach things as far as government, economics, religion, uh, culture, history, educational system. They would have things for youth. Um, he was very much interesting in people knowing, knowing, knowing their roots, you know, that for them to ha- be having a pride in themselves, to understand that the white man is not better than you. Um, you know, you might, you're no better than uh, the white man and the white man is no better than you. And he needed to let people know that. And it, you, this was in a time between World War One and World War Two, where at this time there were still lynchings going on actively. So um, he came to Harlem and there he, uh, in informing the uh, UNIA, um, he had a way of, uh, how should I say, galvanizing the troops. You'll see that he believed in uh, us owning our own businesses, owning our own production and means. You know, the thing about it is, is that instead of being in the United States and wanting a piece of the pie, in my terms, I'm saying you can make your own pie. And that's what he pretty much stood for. He stood for self-reliance. He stood for, you know, um, connections around the world. Um, when he built uh, this thing, you know, when he, when he started with the steamships, um, it's basically of a way for any products that we create, you know, to be able to trade around the world. So connecting Africa, it's a way of connecting the United States. It's a way of connecting the Caribbean, which included Cuba. It's in North and South America. And, you know, as far as forming a trade triangle among these nations. So his movement is, is listed as a back to Africa, but his movement was to unite the whole of the African diaspora. And the thing about it is, is that that program is something if it was continued to, to a, if it was started in, a, you know, in, in, when he came up here in 1916, if it, if it had continued, the United States and the world would be a different place today because now we're trying to do that. Uh, um, the early, you know, basically the civil rights movement started with my grandfather. Uh, one of the uh, 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 wife and husband couple that attended and had their own UNIA chapter um, eventually was the parents of Malcolm X. So Malcolm X would be in Harlem at a young, at a young age, watching the parades and all those uniforms. And, you know, um, now people had a purpose because why, you know, he built people up and let them know that you do have a purpose. It doesn't matter what job you have. Well, now we're in an army, we're in the army for our, our race in order to perpetuate our race, in order to know that we are connected to a larger group, which is Africa, and we are part of that group. So as time went along, though, of course, like anybody that is uh, is doing more for the black folks, you can go Angela Davis, Malcolm X, you can go to, there's always someone, you know, the government who want to, you know, toward that. One of the things you'll find, and if you read in history, is that the Bureau of Investigation Basically, um, J. Edgar Hoover started his career by going after my grandfather and basically um, hired the first black individual to perpetuate my grandfather's group who just had a code name of 800. And of course, if you know J. Edgar Hoover, he later on went on to even uh, go after Angela Davis, Malcolm X, and so many more. 
So my grandfather is just not a symbol. He started with something that is worldwide. Africa for the Africans, both home and abroad. Um, you know, he, uh, he, he created uh, a need for liberation in Africa. One of his early, um, uh, I would say, one of his early disciples, so to say, was uh, Kumar. Um, 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 eventually became, who was here in the, in the United States at the time, heard my grandfather speak and was very influenced by philosophies and opinions. Um, um, you know, edited by, by my grandmother, Amy Jakes Garvey. He went back to Africa and he eventually became prime minister. And also when they gained their liberation, became the um, president of Ghana. That's why you'll notice to this day, when you see that Ghana frag, you see that black star. That black star is for the black star liner. It's an honor to my grandfather. So there's, a, and, and of course, from that liberation led to many others and throughout the um, um, continent of Africa. So what I'm saying is that what my grandfather started is something that needs to continue today. We need to own our own businesses. We need to support our own businesses. We need to um, have our own education as far as what our history is, to know that we came from a glorious history. And this is just something that I'm, you know, I'm glad to know that there are many people that are continuing in it and driving it forward. Let's go ahead and, uh, I guess, get into our discussion. All right. Thank you so much. I think, I think you, you laid a, a very good um, foundation for our discussion. You, uh, especially that you clarified that Marcus Garvey was not just about back to Africa. Most people are of the opinion that Marcus Garvey's message was, let's all pack our belongings, get on a ship, and go back to Africa. And, and that sort of, um, of message uh, it doesn't sit well with everybody because some folks um, don't feel that same connection to Africa that everybody feels. Some others feel like we, we as the people have contributed so much the development of this this part of the planet, why should we abandon it? Why shouldn't we stay here and benefit from the sweat and toil of our, of our folks? And so I, I'm very happy that you clarified that Marcus Garvey's message was a universal message, a message particularly targeted at the diaspora, uh, saying that, listen, this is where we are. If we focus on Africa, focus on our people, we, we can make a difference in terms of empowering our people. Now, Colin, well, let me just say that in case there are some people who joined us a few minutes after we started, uh, my guest tonight on this weekend interview is Mr. Colin Garvey. He is the grandfather, his grandson of Marcus Garvey. And we, we, are, we, are, we are trying to, to unpack the, the current circumstances of, of black folks in America, black folks in the Caribbean, um, black folks in Africa, and, in the, and everywhere in diaspora. We're trying to unpack the circumstances that exist uh, and look at it from uh, a lens, uh, through a lens of, uh, that the Marcus Gabby tried to give us as early as um, the 1920s and, and 1930s. So when you look back, at, at the work of your father and you as a, as a leader existing right now in America, 
how do you make the connection between what your grand message your grandfather was was delivering the manner in which he's delivering and how and how do we make it relevant to to now contemporary times well like i said the way you do it is by understanding that i'm living in the united states right now and i've i have um when I came to this country, I came in 1969. Now, the thing is, is that when I came up here, I did not know I was black, meaning a minority until I came to this country. And this country let me know who I am. But the thing is, is that I come from a country where we own the country. We gained our independence in 62. So I know that I have my country, although I'm here in this country. And what the thing we've got to understand is that this country, when they say about systematic racism, this country is set up for initially for white men because and i say that because when you look at the declaration of independence that we you know we're going to celebrate independence day it did not include black negroes it did not include women it did not include um native americans a matter of fact women didn't even get the right to vote until was it 1999 with the 19 1919 within um the uh, 19th amendment okay Blacks didn't even get the right to vote until uh, black males didn't get the right to vote until um, the 15th, um, the 15th Amendment. OK, now what we need to understand, what my grandfather was trying to bring about here in the United States is for us to understand we need to own our own means. We have a different culture. We're from a different area. We, we come from somewhere different. We need to control the means of education. We need to control the means of our own commerce. We need to set up our own businesses. It would be great if we had our own banks because it's great to have businesses and make money, but yet still put it in uh, you know, white banks. Okay. When we control the means, then we are on an equal footing. When we're on an equal footing, when, when, you're, in a, when you're in a country that's not designed for you initially, one way you can be on an equal footing is economically, you know, socially. As far as, you know, if you want to, you know, earn that respect, that's what this country, that's what the world is recognizing is money and power. And the way you get that is by controlling your own means, you know, by setting up your businesses, by uh, educating your kids in the prop, you know, in, in their history. And, in, you know, the thing that my grandfather instilled in people is this pride, you know, this pride that you are kings and queens, you are, you have a royal past. And it doesn't matter what job you do. You're still, you know, the idea that somebody is rich and then somebody is middle class, the person that's rich is better than the person that's middle class. It's a fallacy. Okay? Because our characters, who we are, how we carry ourselves, how we conduct ourselves, how we treat people, how we allow people to treat us. That makes a difference in how we walk and move in our daily lives. So, uh, how we allow people to treat us. You just made that statement. And one of the things that I admire most about Marcus Garvey is that he did not call. He did not, he did not bow. He did not try to, he tried to get along, but on his terms. Yes. I, I, I saw where it said that he actually went and had a discussion with the Ku Klux Klan, and that's at the time when they were actively lynching folks. So, so he, he, he approached them 
from a mindset that that we are equals and and therefore you have an issue with our coexistence talk to me as an equal and let's see how we can resolve that the, the reason why I'm, I'm latching onto that is because um, so I live I live in America and I have three black sons and I constantly hear black people say that they have that talk with their sons you know like if you get if you're confronted by the police this is how you conduct yourself so that you can make it out of that confrontation alive and, and all of that while I understand that I I think that that is a mistake uh, not that we should encourage our young men to be confrontational with the police, but we should be educating our people that we have to stand up for what we know is our right. And we may be brutalized for it. Some of us may lose our lives for it. But nobody has ever made progress by cowering, by, by, by trying to shield yourself from, from somebody who's, who's beating you for no reason. Talk about the courage that you, that you see from the manner in which your father conducted himself, from the way that he tried to marshal our people, and, and the way, not only the message, but the manner in which he delivered his message. Uh, and, and let's see how, what is it that maybe we can learn from that in terms of how we approach the people who are brutalizing us at present. Now, for one thing, when he said he met with the, it's in 1922, he met with the uh, Ku Klux Klan, we got to understand that um, usually we're trying to assimilate. And in a way, in our assimilation, we're actually all almost admitting that, you know, I'm not saying that we, you know, I'm just, we're admitting that the white man is superior or better and we just want to be a part of that. And my grandfather really wanted, believed in race purity, which means when he met with the Ku Klux Klan, He's thinking they they met they believed in race purity and he believed in race purity, and so we're he he, he, he that's why he had problems with D.W. Du Bois and a lot of the um, other educators and so forth because their focus was assimilation. Marcus Garvey's focus was hey look, you know we ha- we can do our own thing own our own thing and we can be connected around the world and form our own commerce and our own business and our own this. I'm not trying to assimilate with anybody. Okay, we stand individually. First of all, genetics tell us what? That we have dominant genes. Our pigmentation tells us that what? We're more durable for whatever climate there is. So to come and say that, you know, we are less than is 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 a falsity. Now, my grandfather, you got to understand, he came from Jamaica. He's also a descendant of the Maroons, which were strong and warring people. A matter of fact, when the British tried to conquer them, they went up into the hills and put a whooping on the British and they just said, okay, just, 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 you know, leave us with our slaves and, and we'll leave you alone, okay? So you gotta understand, you came from Jamaica that got their independence in 62. So when he came up here, he was not towering to anybody from where he came from. So he's had a different mindset when he came up here. Now, when the people that are here, you gotta understand, They've been, you know what, you know what, at that point, they've been through uh, 300 years of, uh, you know, of, 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 of you know, uh, it, repression, slavery, Jim Crow, you know, I mean, it, well, you know, you know, Jim Crow, all those type of things. So they've got a different viewpoint than when we, than uh, when my grandfather came up here. But when he came up here, 
what he focused on doing is building people and letting them know, look, you are somebody, you are an individual, you are a valued person. No one is better than you. Okay. And we are going to go ahead and we're going to form these groups. We're going to go ahead and start. I wanted this one of the, when he formed it, when he formed the factories was uh, the black doll factory. Okay. That was back in the 1920s. Okay. Which says what we should have images. Our kids should be playing of images of ourselves so that we can proud of who we are because we are truly beautiful. The standard of beauty is not, you know, tall, you know, blonde, blue eyes, you know, or whatever it might be. No, the standard of beauty is what we decide is the standard of beauty for us. No one should dictate to us what the standard of beauty. And if anyone know, black people are a beautiful people. Okay, we don't, they don't need to paint their faces or do anything. They have the natural skin tones that can support their beauty. Okay. So he brought that, he brought that confidence and let people know, look, we walk with purpose. Our heads are up. No matter where we go, we walk that way. We talk that way. We act that way. And in a, in a lot of cases, what I love, and people say, oh, you went to the poor communities. The problem is, is that society is made up of everybody. And I believe in building from the bottom up. What am I saying? What we impart to our children to be things that are forever, manners, respect, teaching morality, work ethic, okay? No matter what they do in life, with work ethic, they're going to be what? Successful at whatever they do. The, the important ones is not just doctors or lawyers. Or when you get to that point, you don't have to worry about the rest of them because now you've made it. We're all, Malcolm X even said it, when, can I, when, when are you going to change your name from Malcolm X? When every one last of my brothers and sisters are out of oppression, then I'll change my name. He's saying, I, I might be up here, but my struggle includes the last person that's left. So assimilation and our, our desire to assimilate has, has held us back for, for quite some time. How do we how how do we get that message to 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 become uh, something that we can we can we can we can expose we can teach without getting the backlash that we will automatically get that people are saying that if we preach that that black people should not necessarily try to assimilate into the society we automatically are going to be called racist uh, and and things with that connotation have you how do we how do we bring that into a 21st century and and talk to black folks and let them understand that the objective is not to assimilate the objective is to build yourself up so that you can you can interact on a more equal footing now first of all when you talk about assimilation you see what's leading assimilation has pretty much led to the the conversion of who you are to fit the white profile of what they expect from you in order for you to be put in certain positions. So if you want to be a newscaster and you're female, I'm sorry, you can't wear that nappy here. You can't wear that hairstyle, that fro. You cannot wear those things. So what you see a lot now on these programs is that you see the fake hair, the, um, the, the white type of, you know, long hair and all this sort of stuff. 
that is it's not the texture or quality of 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 that black person but in order to fit into you know the larger demographic of people that are going to be watching the show you have to convert yourself in so many different ways both men and women okay so what i'm saying is about assimilation is you can be a part of a group but keep your identity however in certain positions folks are not allowed the one lady wanted to wear her natural and you know they said if you do that you know you're going to lose your job <laughs> so you know so black people on, on a lot large scale are not given a choice you're saying they have to lose themselves in order to assimilate the way to avoid that is to control your own production is to have your own business right now i'm an independent you know i am self employed i do investments and so forth if i want to go to jamaica get what i'll ask the boss who's the boss i'm the boss and you know what the boss always says yes okay and it's 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 a different experience from when i worked in the corporate world when i worked in engineering so forth and so on you also have to adopt um principles and behaviors and things that might not be yours but in order to fit in that corporate world you have to accept these things when you own your own and when you create your own guess what you can go by the rules that you would like to go for for your life so this in, in, for black people that assimilation is is more a converting of who i am and a subversion of who i am i don't want to talk too loud i don't want to you know seem too aggressive i don't want to put my hands up i don't want to you know you know there's so many different changes that we have to go to in order to assimilate that word assimilation and i'm still a little a little bit longer because we see the lengths that our people go through to quote unquote assimilate and and you you shared with us that as far back as in the 1920s your grandfather recognized that as the issue to this extent that he started making black dolls so that little girls who play with their dolls and all every little girl think her doll is beautiful she is looking at an image of a black person and thinking that that black person is beautiful and therefore that concept of beauty is seeped into her being as she's being developed similarly for for men uh there's a movement where black men mostly wear their hair really really short so uh, so that the nappiness doesn't show yes uh, and 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 our women do weave and not weave like we used to plait our hair in africa when we were growing up in the caribbean we mm-hmm. were we get here that looks like somebody who is from india or or, or scandinavia or wherever it is that that he here is straight and yes. and folks don't make that connection we 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 look forward to a time in life where this the texture of your hair as 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 it said by um I guess last it's the texture of your hair or the color of your skin I'm adding to it is of no more significance than the color of your eyes. Yes. Eyes are accepted. Or I'll even say uh, is of no more significance than the color of the fur on your dog or your cat. Because yes. Nobody thinks that a black dog it has any superior um, characteristics than a white dog or vice versa simply because simply because of um, of the color of his fur. Yes. And, and so until we get to that point as black people we have to be conscious 
of the message that we that we impart into our our community when we don't accept the things that grow naturally on us as being beautiful um, or what we consider to be um, grooming. Yes. Yeah. So so I don't know how we get out of that quandary because the, the amount of money that our people spend on their hair could probably fund any one of those business lines that we're talking about that we need in the black community. Well, first of all, the black community as a group spends more than any other group. Now, my grandfather started, you know, wanted to start these different business groceries, dry cleaners, printing, uh, newspapers, all that. If that had continued and developed, guess what? All these hair products and everything that especially women use and, you know, hair, all that sort of stuff could be coming in the, you know, staying in the uh, in the uh, black community because they would have their own businesses. They would provide these things instead of you'll find that they're Asians that I remember back in New York, it used to be the Asians had the vegetable stand in the, in, in Brooklyn and, you know, and, um, and then they'd even own the hair products and the stores and stuff like that. So basically the money that's generated in the black community and it's something that study that was done on it, doesn't spend much time in the black community. You go to Asian community and what do you see? You see restaurants, you see banks, you see, you know, you see so many different things to where their money would probably 30 days, it will rotate in that community. Whereas in our community, it just goes straight out because we don't have any businesses that we're investing in, which is what my grandfather wanted us to do, not just here. He said, okay, if you're not going to set up a, a country like Liberia in, in Africa to where we can create a, a environment where we are dominant environment, where we'd be able to find, um, you know, raw materials and develop those raw material manufacturing in the United States or in the Caribbean and trade them amongst through the ships and shipping lines, trade them amongst, you know, these different nations with the majority black populations. Imagine what we could do. What imagine what we could build. We could, if these are the products we use and it's exclusively our use, then why shouldn't we control the production, the manufacturing, and the distribution of it? And and so let's bring it to, to this time. Um, have you? How much thought have you given to this concept that that black people should be moving towards owning those means of production? In, in the age of cell phones and telecommunications and money transfers and transportation and, and all of those things, and not just manufacturing. Uh, what is your, your sense of, of the state of that in terms of the black community? And um, do, you see, do you see a light at the end of the tunnel in that regard? And, and what, what can we do? What can we do? There, there are places, there are, you know, I know up in Killeen, they have a group up there. They have the, the Black Business Pages, which is basically uh, a listing of all the black businesses. And in doing something like that, and I think they're trying to make it go, uh, you know, you know, countrywide, you know. And when you, you know, so you can actually, you know, it's, it's take training. You can actually look and see, okay, well, th- these are businesses. This is what they carry. So instead of going spending my dollar and, uh, you know, in one of the regular stores, let me let's, let me spend it in one of my own businesses, you know, that I know that is being backed by the black community. You know, so and, and that, you know, and I think that's popping up 
all over. People are becoming more conscious. Um, what you're finding out to what has happened recently is that there's a grass movement. Black Lives Matter is a grassroots grass a grassroots movement, meaning that it wasn't some you know leader and we're looking for his instruction like a Martin Luther King or a Malcolm X or a Marcus Garvey, but it's just the you know with the pandemic and what has happened and um, what happened to Brother Floyd, he became a catalyst for a lot of things that are happening right now. So we're in a time where there's more awareness and in more awareness, we can have more activities. And, you know, these these people that are moving in those like the black business, you know, uh, you know, um, directory and so forth. It's they're going to gain more foothold, especially what's with what's happening right now. So. Do you so so by studying the work of your father, you've cast your eyes backwards um, present. And then we have a group of young people uh, looking into the future. What do you see with the young people? Is Are we more hopeful that maybe we have a, a more, maybe, should I say militant? Uh, maybe militant is not the word, but a more, a more woke, if you want to use one of the words that they use. Do, do we see that our young folks or young black folks coming up are more forward-leaning and, 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 and therefore, that gives us hope as a risk. Well, it's not just, you know, I, I'm going to put just young people in general. Young people in general today are more aware. They're more aware of an environment, the effects that what we do have on the environment. They're more aware of, uh, of the, the nature of, of, of people, of different races, cultures, and background. They're more aware of, you know, things where uh, work is a part of life. Work is not your whole life. So they're looking to have balance in their life instead of just one, you know, just one thing. You know, my grandfather is great and what he did is, and I believe he was selected at the appropriate time in order to carry out and in order to initiate something that turned into a lot, you know, a lot bigger, a lot. Africa for the Africans a home and abroad to where you know, it, 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 it ushered in liberation in Africa as well as liberation in people's mind and, and, you know, and so forth and so on. So these, what I'm saying is that young people today are very, are very aware. It's just that are they aware of their roots or like I said, it's in the United States, it's, it's assimilation game, meaning that I've lived in this country a long time and people will say, Oh, you're American. You know? And I said to them, I said, look, you know, I was born in England. My family, most of my parents are Jamaican. I grew up in Jamaica. And that heritage is not something I'm going to throw away. Okay? Where I, what, who I identify with and where I identify with is my choice. You know, I reside, I served in the military here in the Air Force, and it's great and all that. However, when I consider my country, I consider my country, the, you know, Jamaica. And to, to know that the flag, which is a symbol but it's a symbol, it's a great symbol for white folks, but it's not such a great symbol for black folks because it's almost a sign of oppression that is still continuing to this day. You know what I'm trying to say? So, you know, it's, it's you know, so, you know, oh, the flag, the flag is just a symbol. You know, these monuments, uh, you know, that they're knocking down is just a symbol. What is really going to help us is what? Is actual you know, actual legislation and change, actually having real history being taught in school, including black history and white history. 
instead of just some history that is being told by the group who makes themselves look good and everybody else look bad. So do you consider yourself a Pan-Africanist? And what does that term mean to you? A Pan-Africanist means that I know that my origins in Africa. I look at the whole of the diaspora and not just the United States or Jamaica. You know, I am looking at the you know, perpetuation of my race. I would like to see my race perpetuated. I don't want to see it diluted to the point where it disappears. I would like to see my race perpetuated. Why? Because I know we're the beginning, the alpha, and we probably will be the omega, the end. Because we're dominant genes, we have, you know, the dominant pigmentation, you know, and I'm just saying that I believe in the whole, and that's why I'm very comfortable in whatever country I go to. I've been to Germany, France, Italy, Spain, Scotland, you know, Canada, you know, I mean, I've been all over and I am comfortable wherever I go. But I am pro for the black race or the Negro race or whatever you want to call it. I am very pro that because that is who I am. And I want to perpetuate that. I don't want to diminish it. So, so yes, you consider yourself a Pan-Africanist and that is your concept of what a Pan-Africanist is. So yes. is there a place in that Pan-Africanism movement for a back-to-Africa movement? That, that one... Um, most controversial aspect of it, where we say, listen, they don't want us here. Africa is full of resources. Why don't we just go back and we can be among our people? We can develop the place for ourselves. What is there? Is there a place for or what role does that back to Africa movement play in Pan-Africanism? Now, the, I'm glad you brought that up because I need to bring some numbers to you. Okay. And the numbers are basically that um, there's about one in the continent of Africa, there's about 1.34 billion people. One point we're, we're, yeah. yeah, we're a we're hundred thousand less than China. And about uh, uh, 40,000 less than India. Now, what's interesting about Africa is that the individual countries are Africa are growing at a rate of 8 to 10% a year, which means Africa continent is going to overtake China. It's going to overtake India. It is the emerging nation. Ghana, when we talk about um, uh, Kwame, he, um, he, uh, he, he, was, he, he was one of the instrumental in the African Union. They're working on having um, a United States of Africa. They're trying to work towards that to where uh, there's there's one currency, you know, but of course, a bit part of it's still on the, you know, um, you know, on the uh, 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 what you want to say, French rule and so forth. But certain certain countries are trying to, you know, group together and have one currency and basically have it to where you can go from, you know, you know, you can go from country to country without having to have a visa. So these things are being worked on. Ghana is very active. They have a lot of people from from African Americans from from um, the United States who go to Ghana, who start businesses, who work in Ghana, who's living in Ghana, and is loving living in Ghana. Okay, you got it on the on the opposite side of it. There are a lot of uh, white Americans that go to Costa Rica and other places, you know, and leave the United States. So there's nothing wrong with us going back to Africa and living in Africa. You know, because like I said, the resources are great. The potential is a lot greater than in Africa than it is in the United States. 
I, I, I like that answer because for a long time, the United States has held a position where it is the beacon that, that everybody tries to go to. And that is what they have benefited from. As much as they, they, they claim not to like immigrants, um, the greatness, quote-unquote, greatness of, of, of Africa, of America in terms of industry and, 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 and world domination has been a large in large part due from, from migration of immigrants. And, mm -hmm. and so what you explained to me is that if we as Africans organize ourselves properly, we could be that beacon that says, you know, there is opportunity. You, you, your move into Africa is not a sacrifice because you believe in the advancement of your people. Your move, your move into Africa is because there are opportunities in Africa. Yes, it is for a better life. So that's that is that that's what I heard you say. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk, go ahead. If you were going to say something, I was going to say that the thing is that the United States is beating its chest all the time. So we're the greatest country in the world. My thing on that is, if we're the greatest country in the world, can we start listing what we're the greatest at, and we're not what we're not the greatest at? Can we work on this? Are we the greatest in education? No. How are we the greatest in freedom that we keep talking about? And the answer is no. There are other countries that are free economies and everything else than, than we have. You know, one, one thing we're the greatest in is in our military. We, have the, we spend the most on military and have the largest military. We also, 5% of the world's population, guess what? We have the 25% of the incarceration of the world is what we can boast. So we have, we, we, we're supposed to be free, but, you know, we incarcerate more people than anywhere else in the world. And, and, you know, I could go down a list, education, healthcare. Are we the number one in that? No. So, I mean, as, the propaganda is great, but we need to start living, dealing in facts if we want to make country and this country greater. But the thing about this is that I don't even know if, if America can boast of a great military because they have not won a single military conflict anywhere in the world. I mean, but they do. Iraq, Iraq is not considered to be one of the most powerful countries in the world. And we went to Iraq and spent so many lives and fortune, so much fortune, and we basically had to just live with a compromise. So yes. so so I'm not sure that they can that you can honestly or genuinely boast. They can honestly and genuinely boast that they have such a great military. They can yes. destroy stuff but but you cannot get the result that, that you want. I, I want to I want to turn our attention to the Caribbean um, because the Caribbean is uh, especially the Eastern Caribbean where we come from and the islands in the, in the Caribbean Sea. Um, we we are predominantly a black diaspora, an African diaspora. What role What role do you see that we can play? The the, the place of birth of your grandfather. Um, where we are from, where we identify with, um, what role can we play in this whole movement of, of improvement of the Negro race to continue the vision of your, of your grandfather? Now, what the problem is, is that um, we're a small fish in a huge ocean. And what I mean by that is that it was America. America took care advantage of the resources to the point where, like I said, 
Jamaica has got beautiful fruits, vegetable and all that. But a lot of the fruits and stuff is actually coming from the United States because, you know, they provide it cheaper than we can actually farm it and so forth and so on. So therefore, that industry is kind of destroyed. You know, they, um, you know, right now, it, I'm just using uh, Jamaica as an ex, uh, example because um, the other islands, I'm pretty sure, has a similar thing. China. China is a large player in a lot of countries around the world. They're a large player in Jamaica. You know, they bring their own people in when they set up companies and so forth. So they, the choice jobs are, are, are basically uh, their own people. And then the menial, the residual jobs are given to, you know, the island folks. So in a situation like that, um, and along with the increase in crime and the, uh, the increase in materialism, the um, you know you know the United States is considered a great country, but it also transports a lot of things throughout the world, and one of them is materialism, wanting the latest stuff, wanting this stuff, the feeling that I need to have this and happy. When people don't know about the truth of the United States, which is this, is about 157 million working people out of 331, and about 70, 75 to 78 percent of them live paycheck to paycheck. We might even have jobs, but they live paycheck to paycheck. And we're exporting our, you know, our, our, you know, our materialism around the world into places where they don't have the infrastructure we do, you know, the islands. They don't have the job that we do. They don't get paid what we get paid for the same work up here. So, and it costs more for those products in these islands. So you're dealing with a problem that's, that's it's also, the, you know, corruption is everywhere. But America is a lot larger to absorb corruption, whereas a small island, corruption is, a, is on a larger scale because it's a smaller island. So these are, these are some of the things that we have to deal with. That's why so many people flee from the island and come to somewhere like the United States. So having said that, that this is the perfect time then for me to ask you, what would Marcus do? If your grandfather was, was here now, and we look at the Caribbean, and he saw the picture that you just painted of what's going on in the Caribbean. What do you think that he would do to try to, to reverse that trend? I can answer that question very easily. And what I'm about to say is not going to be popular, but it's true. My grandfather from 1914 came to Jamaica, and he set up a UNIA and tried to do what he later on did in the United States. And he was, it was not received well. Because there's another, and I don't know if you'll want to admit it, there's another problem in, in places like Jamaica and all this. And it's called, in the United States, you're black or white. You might say, oh, I'm light skinned, I'm this and that, but you're either black or white. Obama is black. You know, although his mother is half, you know, is white and stuff like that. Well, in Jamaica, and I assume the other islands you do, you have colorism. And you know what I mean by colorism? It means that, you know, you know different shades of color has different advantages and benefits. That's why you see in a lot of these islands is so much bleaching going on and so forth and so on to be lighter. So what I'm trying to say is, is that there's a lot of things that are going on to where some while like my grandfather, he was in Jamaica. They had first shot at building their country and, and the principles and what my grandfather was trying to do. They pretty much rejected him. And he came to the United States and from there on, because his, his, his plan was to get information, to develop something like a Tuskegee Institute, go back to Jamaica and build a Tuskegee Institute right here in Jamaica. 
But when he came up here and saw the difference and what black people went through here, he ended up basically spending a lot of years here. And even when he went back to Jamaica, he ended up going, going back to, going to England. So it's, it's a hard question to answer if, if, from what I just said. Because I was going to say, if your grandfather did it in the U.S., maybe you have to go to Jamaica to do it. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, our, uh, around the world, money is power. And you're dealing with small islands where it's easy to buy people out. And the thing about it is, is that, you know, my one thing that my grandfather is um, did, is, like, he's like me, he didn't smoke or drink. He believed that a leader should set the optimal example. Why? Because if a leader does not set the proper example, he leaves holes in his leadership to where people can look to find a way to break from what he, they're trying to do as a leader. And that's one of the things that I think sets my grandfather apart is that he sacrificed. He sacrificed the time he'd spend with his family because he was on a mission, a mission that was greater than him, a mission that involved every every black person on planet Earth. His mission was to try to see if he could make, you know, elevate the whole race and even sacrificing the time that, that they could have spent with his family in order to do that. You know, uh, we are part, what I'm saying is, is that we need to build from the bottom up. And when I say from the bottom up, we need to disseminate to parents who have children for the next generation to, to, to build them, to, to, to teach them the manners and respect, the pride, the work ethic, the self-reliant skills, you know, all these things. And that's how we can lift the diaspora throughout the world. It's the, the idea of having one person that's going to lead with all the things that we're going on and all the electronics and all that is going on. It's, it's a different time than what my grandfather did. My grandfather was right for that time. Malcolm X, Malcolm X was right for his time. Martin Luther King was right for his time. The leader in South Africa was right for his time. So it's, 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 you can't just say, well, I'll take him and put him here. And this is, it would happen the same way. It's hard to do that. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things your grandfather said, if I have to paraphrase him, is that knowledge, the people with knowledge and, and intellect, the educated people will own things. And the ignorant people, black people with less knowledge and less, less education, are going to be the one carrying the burden, the beast of burden. And so, like the, the Caribbean, there are so many of us who are educated. There are so many of us who, who have the ability to think. And, and maybe not just the Caribbean, but how can we galvanize that mental acuity that we have that superiority in application of our mind, how can we gather that together to create that movement that you're suggesting that is required? Because I hear you. Um, every time our inspirational leaders rise, they get caught down. Every time uh, it, it, the strategy is not difficult to see, 
they've, they've, they've cut down every time we've had a leader who looks like he or she might be able to galvanize enough support. They either cut them down, literally killing them, or they they make sure that there's there's a vacuum of support, so they collapse. How how are we going to address that? If you if you if you I know I mean I'm calling for you to speculate, but I'm pretty sure that you have thought about it in that in that way. Um, what what do we need to do to be able to to move ourselves um, where where we can use our minds to move ourselves forward? You've got to understand that there's almost like a a class system. I've made it. I've got it. And we've got to understand that we are, you know, it says, you know, my grandfather had this saying, what, one aim, one God. One one destiny. Mm -hmm. It means it doesn't matter what your status is in society. And I've said this before, what people feel to realize what the pandemic has shown is that the people that we we um, ignore are very important in our daily lives. What do I mean? The grocer is very important in your daily life. The uh, garbage man is very important to your daily life when there's a pandemic on. Guess what? You need that garbage man to clear that neighborhood. You might think you don't even notice him, but you know, your grocery, how many times you go? Some people go two, three times to the grocery for a week. Okay. These people are important. And the thing, the thing that you got to understand that in a society, everybody's important. I am, you know, the whole idea that a doctor is more important than a grocer, you know, and so forth and so on. And, and I know that's what we do in our minds. And everybody can't be a doctor. Everybody can't be an engineer. You know, that we need people that work in the drive-through at in McDonald's. You know, I mean, that's part of, you know, society and that's part of life. The whole idea now, what I'm saying, what can we do? We can understand that we take the whole burden. The fact that we are all, you know, we are all one. It doesn't matter what our position is. It's just that usually when you find a grassroots movement, it is coming from the middle class and below. It's not coming from, you know, if you know what I'm saying, the, in, in, you know, as far as, you know, impactful movement. And that's what, you know, you know, the uh, Pan-Africanism was around before my grandfather. But my grandfather took Pan-Africanism and made it a mass movement. And to this date, I mean, to this date, it happened in 1916 to 1927. That's the largest mass movement in the world. What has happened since then? So that's Where what are I was the about to ask you. That's what I was about to ask you, Collins. What is the status of pan of the Pan Africanism movement in the U.S.? Is there an active um, movement going on? If there is, are you part of it? Um, how do people find out about it if they want to participate in it, uh, and so on? There are UNIA chapters around and so forth, but the problem with that is that is is there's not much young support. So basically, what you have is you know, but it's not so much. It's not even so much, okay, it's Pan-Africanism. What we understand is that, like I said, there are people that are seeing the wisdom of going to Africa and, you know, developing it in Africa. And, um, you know, and there are many people. And if you go on the Facebook and so forth, you see that there are groups that actually live in Africa and giving feedback of what it's like to, you know, be in Ghana or to, you know, uh, be in other parts of Africa. And that, that movement is there. And the point is that it, it, the whole idea is that 
what is black nowadays is so it's so varied. You know what I mean? So it's hard to, you know, when you're when you're when you're near near the oppression time, it's easy to coalesce as a group. But when you find that people are, you know, a breakaway and they're in a certain status or whatever, they it's it's hard for them, you know, to take the time to reach down or to there are many people in the United States that have excellent jobs that are making a lot of money that are, you know, entertainment industries or different things. And there are some that are actually helping out and doing things, but it's hard to, you know, to, to move as a coalesced group, one God, one aim, one destiny. It's becoming harder to form that type of cohesiveness. So the, so yes, there is a Pan-African movement, but, um, and you said that there are still UNIA chapters around yes, the U.S. Yes, still UNIA. You can pull them. You can just go online and just pull it up. UNIA chapters, Philadelphia, New York, you know, wherever. I know in Jamaica, the first UNIA chapters down there. And, um, you know, I've been down there and, and, and you know, so forth. But the thing about, like I said, um, you know, we, we we're trying to recreate something that I want to say had its heyday. It doesn't have to necessarily be called Pan-Africanism. It's just a matter of fact that we are tied to one place, which is just like how we look at the Jews. The Jews are all over the world. However, they're tied to what? Jerusalem. Okay. But they are around the world in different places, and they're usually in very top spots around the world. What I'm saying is that as a ground-up movement is that we've got, to, we've got to have that pride. To me, because you live in a poor neighborhood, does not mean that, okay, because I live in a poor, you know, our poor neighborhood that I commit crime because I came from Jamaica. There were neighborhoods that, you know, were, you know, were not, you know, but people had respect, manners, all these type of things. And what I'm saying is things moving up for the ground up. Wealth should not just be measured by whether you have this size house or not. Wealth is character. Wealth is, is respect. Wealth is if you don't have respect and manners and these things, it's hard for you to have any kind of relationship because you don't have a stopgap in order to keep you from, you know, from acting in a derogatory way. So I'm just saying that it's in today's it, it, is is what we really need a Pan Africanism movement. Is that what we really need, it or we just yeah, it, or do we just need cooperations amongst you know um, like folk? in order as far as creating businesses and supporting business. And like I said, there's some people that are creating a directory of black businesses and order and, 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 and promoting these businesses. And, you know, so, you know, so people can actually take the time, take the time and just look up, okay, if I'm going to do this, let me spend my money here. But what if, but what if the answer is yes, yes, we do need Pan-Africanism. What if that is the answer? Because we need something bold. Um, and in your face, that all people can see, uh, and not everybody will come, but at least they will have something to coalesce around. What if the answer to that question is, do, is Pan-Africanism what we need right now? What if the answer to that question is yes? How 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 are we chewing that elephant? And that's a very good question. And I wish this was more people in this group, you know, to group to have a discussion on that, because the way, you know, there's a lot of communications and things that we can do. But it's just like I as, as well as my, you know, my uncle, Dr. Julius Garvey, 
Um, we still, you know, promote, you know, of course, my grandfather mm-hmm. and what he's teachings and basically what he, you know, what he's saying is a blueprint for life. It's not a blueprint for 1925 or 1920. It's a blueprint for whatever century you're in. The fact is you need to control the means of your own production and distribution. You need to educate yourself in order to what your history is so that you can pass it on to your children so they know and have the confidence and to move it, move in and around any environment they're in, whether they're in the United States, whether they're in France, whether they're in Germany, whether they're in Scotland, they can move in confidence knowing where they came from and knowing the, the pride and, and the character and all these things and being able to walk in a, in a, in a forceful manner. And forceful doesn't mean power is not necessarily just applying force, but power is also choosing when to apply it and when not to apply it. So, so are you still actively involved in the UNIA? I am not a member of the UNIA. Mm-hmm. You know, I do um, on occasions, you know, if they ask me to do anything, I will, um, you know, obviously I'll definitely do something. But um, I am very much into education of people within my sphere is okay. what I is do. There, is there like a Marcus Garvey Foundation or some kind of institute that's um, built up around Marcus Garvey? Not that I know of. My uncle Julius might, might, you know, Dr. Julius Garvey. I don't know if he might, if he had set something up like that. Well, he, sure. he, he is a, a, a PhD. Is he at a particular university? No, no, no he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a medical doctor. He's a medical and, doctor. Okay. Yes, yes. And he, he's, oh. in, he's been in the New York area. He's been a chief of thoracic surgery. I think he's retired now for over like 30, 40 years. So, okay. you know, and worked in New York. Mm. So, Going back to the question, and we're coming to a close, but I really want to close it with, I like to close my shows with something that my audience can have, that they can do today, tomorrow, that sort of thing. And, and so I want to come back a little bit to the question that asked, what if what we need is Pan-Africanism? But in a, in a context of now, is, do you see the Black Lives Matter movement as maybe... The Pan African evolving to Pan Africanism, or is it? Is it? What 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 do you think about this, this Black Lives Matter movement? Well, the Black Lives Matter movement, I think, could move in the way of having causing changes in education, the way we teach history in this country. It's there's a need in or there's a need to prevent the correct history. There's a need to understand that if this country was built on the backs of black people, then their history should be told. It should also be honestly told, um, you know, the, the whites, you know, behavior and what was actually happened in this country. These things, when people say, well, I didn't know and I didn't know, that's because our history is not being taught properly. Okay, so that, you know, so Black Lives Matter can cause legislation to be changed. And that's where I see that. And it's already happening where, you know, um, chokeholds are outlawed. You know, these are the things that are going to, you know, um, help. But the thing, the thing that I, I like to use this analogy is that you're, you, you have a landlord that owns a house and you're renting. You know, black people in this country of the United States, although this is your country, are, are treated more like renters than they are like landlords. And it's, it's a far fetch to know when that actually will stop because 
you know, I, I like the term all men are created equal. And that's not really true. We all have genetic dispositions. If that was the case, I don't think Usain Bolt is created equally to me because obviously he can go anywhere in the world and say, I'm faster than you, 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 you. So what I'm saying is, is that what I think should be translated is that all people should be treated with dignity and respect. That makes sense. Instead of saying that all people are equal because we're not, we have genetic disposition, which might be positive or negative, depend on that is that all people should be treated with dignity and respect. And that should be the expectation. So, so Black Lives Matter, you're saying that their main, one of their main aims should be education. It, it should, they should cause change in education, yes, because the way blacks are depicted in this country, that should be corrected in the educational system of history. It is also should, could be corrected in the behavior of white people in this country in the educational system also. Also, like I said, as far one of the things that Black Lives Matter is talking about is police brutality. And there are laws that are, you know, because of the Black Lives Matters is, is now being, um, you know, enforced, you know, being changed. As well as companies and corporations are realizing because it's become a um, like a grassroots movement where a lot of white people are involved. And now corporations are putting their money where their mouth is and are making contributions to HBCUs and, and other things in order to, you know, to benefit the black community. So that Black Lives Matters is causing these changes, you know, where, you know, it, it, it is. It, and, and when I say causing these changes quickly, I'm a huge NASCAR fan. I used to, you know, be a Jeff Gordon fan. And Jeff Gordon was like the Tiger Woods to golf. You know, when Jeff Gordon started racing, he opened it up because it was a southern sport. And, you know, I know that the, the you know, the, the, the uh, Confederate flag and all that, that's a huge part of NASCAR. You know, the the prejudicial behavior is a huge part of NASCAR. OK, and now you have Bubba Watson, this driver who's black. And they said they found a noose in his, uh, you know, there, there's going to be a backlash to, you know, destruction of these monuments and, you know, uh, Confederate soldiers and all that. There's going to be a backlash because there's a large population that's into that, you know, uh, to that way. You know, you know, what is it? Make America great again. I mean, what do you mean when, you know, when slaves were in, uh, it, when you're talking about, is that what you're talking about when it was great again? How about in the Jim Crow era? Was that when it was great again? You know, I mean, exactly what area are we talking about that America was great again? Right. And so we're coming to the close. We're coming to the close of our conversation. And what we see is that we, we are trying to get a piece of a pie that was not built for us. To come back exactly. to your, your analogy in your introduction, um, where you, you, you put the position that we should be looking to build our own pie. Exactly. Where can people find your work and your, your presentations? Because I found, I found um, one or two addresses of yours as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's tell, tell folks where you where they can find you, uh, well, to I'm, reach out to you, how they can. Well, I'm on Facebook, and it's just Colin Garvey on Facebook, okay. you know. And, uh, you know, it's not disguised or anything. I'm right there. And, uh, you know, um, I live in a, you know, like I said, I've had, you know, recently I had a, a white lady ask me, well, is it really that bad? And I said, well, ma'am, 
you know that the average black person basically has to, you know, tell their children how to behave if they get pulled over by a cops just so that they can make it home. And I'm sure that you have never had to have that kind of, you know, um, program with your children. Okay. Uh, you know, we, we live in different worlds, even though we live in the United States. Yeah. They pretend they don't know. But, but I'm, I, I'm not going to let you go until I ask you. Yes. What is it like to be the grandson of Marcus Garvey? His shadow has been cast across generations. Um, such a giant, a lion of a man. Uh, what, is, what is it like being Marcus Garvey? Um, and you seem to, to embrace it. You seem to own it. And, and, and I'm very happy for that. But what is it like? What is, what is it like when you go to Jamaica? Um, I think he's on the currency, isn't he? Yes, he's on the money for Jamaica, yes. Because <laughs> money, you know, yes. What, what is that like? Well, for one thing, uh, I can tell you when I was growing up in Jamaica, I, um, from 62 to uh, 69 when I came up here, I actually spent time with my, my, my grandmother, you know, Amy Jakes Garvey. So I spent time with her. Oh, she was so energetic and everything else. And the thing about it is I have come across people once they find out who I am that want to physically touch me because of the reverence they have for Marcus Garvey. They want to just touch my flesh to know that they've touched a descendant of Marcus Garvey. My daughters are both named after my grandmother, Amy Jakes Garvey. And um, I remember when they were in California and um, they met Ziggy Marley and Ziggy Marley basically uh, you know, was kissing their hand and he was so overwhelmed with that. And, you know, a thing that people don't realize is that when you talk about the Rastafari movement in 1920, my godfather said, look to Africa because a king would be crowned. And before that king was crowned, his name was um, Rastafari, Ras meaning Duke. And when that crown, king was crowned in 1930, his name became Ali Selassie. So you'll find that, you know, the early Rastafari movement came out of what my grandfather said you know, so that's why they look at him as a prophet. And if you see interviews with Bob Marley, he said his two, his, his two of his strongest influences in life was Marcus Garvey and Halle Selassie. So, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, and it, it's amazing, all different colors. I come across white people. My daughter's finished medical school about a year ago, and she was in, uh, in, in class because in, in, she went to Mount Sinai Medical School, and that's my older daughter. And um, she... The professor was just doing football. And, you know, it, the school is like right near Harlem, you know. So he was in football and he said, Amy Garvey? And he said, yes. He said, any relationship to Marcus Garvey? I said, yes, my great-grandfather. He went berserk. He had to tell the whole school who she was. And this is just something that happens. But the thing about it is, is that my take on it is that like my father, I gravitate and I think I know that everybody is important. Every job is important. I find myself saying hello to my brothers and sisters, no matter what walk of life they're in. If I see make eye contact with them, I say hello. And, um, you know, I just think that's, that's, you know, that's just something that comes from, you know, straight from my grandfather is that we are one God one aim, one destiny. We are one people, no matter what walk of life we're from. And, you know, like I said, I believe, I do believe this. We are all related throughout the world. 
It's just that we got to treat each other like we are. And I hope this country can do that and understand that we're all related. Whether you're white, you're black and all that, we should be treated with respect and dignity, every one of us. Awesome. That's such a good place to leave it. And I, and I thank you so much for your time. I, I thank you for sharing your grandfather with us. Um, yes. I, I, I say thank you to, to you for, for, him being, for him being allowed to walk the earth and to be able to, um, to spread his message. And, I, and when I talk about Marcus Garvey, I always say that it's not just his message, but it's the manner in which he went about presenting his message. And yes. as I said, he knew it was important to him. He didn't drink, he didn't smoke. And he, he conducted himself in a manner that, that people could look at him from any direction and see someone of integrity. So, so thank you to you and your family for, for him. Um, and thank you for, for the work that you do in continuing to, to keep him in the consciousness of, of our people because his work is not done until, until as a people, we have, we have crossed over that mountain that we are currently climbing as black people. So I, I'll ask you to give your closing remarks. I don't know if there's anything that you want to share that I may not have asked you, um, but I really appreciate your time um, for coming and, and spending a little more than an hour with me, hour and a half on this weekend interview. Um, what I just want to say is that to my queens out there, you are beautiful. You should be respected. You should be put on pedestal. To my kings out there, we are responsible to uplift our queens. We're responsible to respect them. We're responsible to make this world a better place. We're responsible to set an example. And this is what I want to say. All right. Thank you so much and all the best. Stay safe in these pestilent times. And I look forward to all other conversations. It's a pleasure. We'll, we'll keep in contact. And thank you very much, Anthony. Okay, thank you. Well, listeners, there you have it. I, I, I promised you that it was going to be a great conversation. And we, I, I made acquaintance with a beautiful soul tonight on this weekend interview. I wish everyone a great week. You can join um, Sam on Friday between 10 a.m. Um, and 12 noon Eastern time. He does FYI Fridays. And he and I usually have little interaction around um, between 11, 30, 12 o'clock. But the entire show is great um, on, a, on a Friday um, midday. So, so thank you, listeners, and have a good night. Thank you, Colin, again. Okay. Mm-hmm.